This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 19th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroad.com. Genesis 39, the book is the first book in the Bible, so it's not difficult to find. Then look for the big 39, then you'll find it. Verse 1 is where we're starting. It's only 23 verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing so that we can get a picture of the story that's being told. Genesis 39, verse 1 says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and on field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her house household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And that the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's Word. So we're going through the story of Joseph. And last week in Genesis 38, we read the story of Judah's unfaithfulness. Very dark unfaithfulness. And it's a very powerful contrast to Joseph's story of faithfulness that begins again in chapter 39 here. And we'll continue throughout the end of the book. And the series of 
kind of this chapter 37 to 50 uh, is titled after Joseph's own words at the end of his story, which are, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And the you that Joseph is speaking to are his brothers, and the evil that he speaks of is their decision to fake his death and sell him into slavery. And if we were to backtrack a little bit, chapter 37 ended as 39 begins with Joseph being sold to a man named Potiphar, and he is the captain of the guard for the king of Egypt, also known as the Pharaoh. And when Joseph arrives in Egypt, he is 17 years old. So he is a teenager, and it's important to remember. When we get to chapter 41 in a couple weeks, you will see that Joseph is 30 years old when he rises to serve Pharaoh after being at least in prison for two years when he gave the first dream interpretation to Pharaoh. For some amount of time, he's in prison for crimes he didn't commit. But the whole story of Joseph takes place over 20 years from the time he's sold into slavery by his brothers to the time he sees his brothers again. And 13 of those years are spent as a slave or as a prisoner, depending on how you understand the amount of time in each place. 13 years. So it takes at least 13 years for Joseph to experience the full measure of God's blessing. 13 years. It's a long time to wait. Many of us have difficulty waiting 13 minutes. 13 years trusting that God's blessing would be coming, that His promises would be fulfilled. 13 years. It takes 13 years for God to take Joseph out of the valley that God had actually led him into to put him on the peak where He wanted him to be. And at no time during the story, it certainly could have happened, but it's never recorded in this story from chapter 37 to 50. At no time in the story does Joseph ever spend any part of his life dwelling on the past. From beginning until the end of his journey, he is repeatedly victimized for doing the right thing. And yet, Joseph never ever embraces the identity as a victim. He never resents his past hurts. He never complains about his current pains. He never actively blames anyone, including the Lord, for his hardship. And he doesn't even passively punish those around him by disengaging from life and not working hard or, or living under a depression. Overall, he pushes past what has been done to him and forward into what God has promised to do. It's not very common today. If you're anything like me, or probably a majority of people, we have a very strong tendency to live in the past. To dwell on what has been done to us. And if anyone has perhaps a justifiable excuse to do that, we could argue Joseph probably does. But he doesn't ever go there. He is different in how he thinks. 
He is trusting in something that's governing all things. And I believe it is the very nature of the unchanging, promise-keeping God. And his conviction that God is unchanging helps him to navigate, navigate and even perceive and endure all the peaks and valleys of life differently. Instead of putting his trust in the changing circumstances, right? They're always changing. Our lives go up and down. Things go well. Things go poorly. Things go well. And he does not put his trust in that. That is not what governs him. What governs him is God is unchanging. He is always great. He is always good. He is always generous. He is always gracious. Those are two very different ways to approach our lives. And in watching him do this, and watching the Lord engage with him, we learn a few things that I want to talk about. The first thing we're going to learn is that every good journey or God journey, if you want to call it that, starts in the valley. And the second thing we learn is that even when you come out of that and, you, and you're on the peak, it's a very dangerous place to be. And so as you're there, the thing that is perhaps shocking to us all and the third thing we'll focus on is that jumping off the peak may be better than falling off of it. Very different ways to approach it. But let's look at just the beginning of every journey. That every journey starts in the valley. If we look at chapter 39, we see that the story begins by reminding us where Joseph is. He is a slave in Egypt. Probably the most powerful nation on earth at the time. More than that, it's more specific he is slave in the household of one of the most important men in Egypt, Potiphar. He is the captain of the king's guard. So he likely has wealth. He certainly has power and influence. And so we see that, that God, in His grace, places Joseph in a good place in the midst of a very bad situation. And I'm convinced that the bigness of God, we could talk about God's omniscience and how He knows everything, His omnipotence, how He's all-powerful and, and how the universe can you know, hit, sit in the palm of His hand. And, and those things are awesome and massive, these big things. But the bigness of God for me plays itself out, I think, most clearly or perhaps even more powerfully in the small little details of life that we take for granted. And we often don't really recognize how God orchestrated all these little things until we are perhaps 13 years removed from it and look back. He is in a very strategic place and he probably doesn't have a clue that that is the case. And we ourselves in our own lives, as we look back, we are too dismissive or at least indifferent towards how God has orchestrated all things, good and bad, to bring us to where we're at. The places that we have lived, both good and bad. The experiences that we've had, both good and bad. The jobs that we have taken or lost, good and bad. The people that we have met and had relationships with, good and bad. The decisions that we've made and we look back and say, that was good, that was bad. All of the many good and bad chapters, even the, the seemingly insignificant ones that don't even really, like, barely peak the radar. Like, I remember that. That's a, that's a blur. 
all the details of that, all those good and bad chapters that are part of our story are really all just a part of one really big story that's actually God's. And it's, it's not that with Joseph, like we should think to ourselves, like he's in this, in this captain of the guard house. It's not as if Joseph should be thinking, well, at least, I'm, at least I'm a slave in a good part of town, right? Like we can take that mentality of like, well, it could be worse. And I guess at some level that brings comfort that it's not more horrible than it could be. But dare I say that we could maybe even take a different approach to it? And instead of in my mind it could be worse, we could trust that in God's mind it couldn't be better? That's hard. I mean, that's how I understand like when you, when you look at some of those bad chapters, like really, it couldn't be better? I'm just saying in God's mind who sees all things, controls all things, knows all things, perhaps His best is that. at least for his purposes. So Joseph is definitely in a valley at this point when he starts off. Whether he's in Potiphar's house or someone else's, he is a slave in Egypt, and it's a valley. And the valley is that place that we've all been at or are in at one point or many points in our lives. It's the place of adversity. It's the place of loneliness. It's the place of mistreatment. It's the place of just disillusionment when your expectations were not met. It's the place of failure where you screwed up big time. It's the place of loss. Unexpected loss that you never wanted. The valley is where all things, or perhaps just that one thing, became lower than you wanted it to be. We gotta remember that innocent Joseph, and I mean comparatively speaking, innocent Joseph has been violently ripped from his comfortable life, and it was comfortable as the favored son for 17 years, and thrust into life of slavery. And unlike his brothers, right, there was no record of rebellion, no record of, of, of difficulty in raising them. He was the good kid that did all the right things, and yet he suffered more than his brothers who hated him so much. And so the valley is that place of unexpected hardship where you go, I don't deserve this. That's the real valley. And I believe that that kind of hardship usually has three purposes. And I say this generally. It's not like, well, I guess I'm number two. Like, just has three purposes generally. Recognizing that all things go filtered through God's hands. Nothing surprises Him. We are where we're supposed to be. One of the purposes is of punishment. And what I mean by that is sometimes God is passive in His wrath and He gives us what we so desired and shouldn't have. And we face the natural consequence for that choice is because God didn't stop us from indulging. And there's pain there. And then there's the very active God smite him. Right? And we go, oh, that doesn't happen. Well, Genesis 38 happened twice. Where God says, they are so wicked in my sight, I'm going to kill them. Now, we're told that in Genesis 38, so I caution us to go, this is God's punishment here, I know it got to be careful with that more than likely i think the second one is probably most appropriate for 
those especially who are in Christ. It's not just for the purpose of punishment, it's actually for the purpose of improvement, the purpose of discipline. The Lord says that He disciplines those He loves. Then it doesn't mean we love discipline. Right? My children, never once, I've disciplined my children. I have a 15-year-old down to a 3-year-old. So I have five kids. I've disciplined every single one of them. And never once has any one of those children, as I'm disciplining them, turned to me and said, Father, thank You for loving me so well. Right? I'm so glad that You do not let me get away with the things I want to do. Thank You. Never happened. But I discipline them because I love them. And this is not to say that every bit of adversity we get is discipline from the Lord, but certainly there are those pieces that are. And you've got to remember that God is not in our lives dealing so much with what we do, but with who we are. So He doesn't discipline us in reaction to just sin. Sometimes He disciplines us so that He may refine us and grow us and produce what wouldn't have been there otherwise. Like making someone more patient or more compassionate. And so we, okay, I can see that. But I like what Jerry Bridges has noted in a book, I believe it's Trusting God. You see, God actually may have other things in mind than just corrective discipline. We know that Joseph's brothers needed corrective discipline far more than Joseph did, yet none of them suffered like Joseph did. Right? You look at Joseph and his brothers, you're like, well, um, Joseph didn't do anything, and these guys got away with everything. If anyone needs discipline, it's probably his brothers, but that's not what happens. And although we could say, well, God's trying to produce some things in Joseph. And we do that like, well, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm becoming a different person, and that's totally true. But sometimes, maybe the third option is more accurate, and maybe it's accurate all the time. God has a greater purpose at work that you don't fully understand. A purpose of redemption, whereby the adversity that happens to you may have nothing to do with you. He may bring any trial or hardship into your life, and it we can't even fathom the number of connections and the people it's influencing and what that's actually accomplishing in his view. I don't think Joseph has a clue exactly what's happening, but he has a vision of what God has promised to do. We're not asked and expected to understand every hardship that happens into our lives. Is this punishment? Is this discipline? What is this? We're not asked to understand it all. We're, we're asked to trust and you go, trust what exactly? We're, we're to trust God. We're to trust that the Lord is actually with us in the valley. That He's there. See, a lot of people take Genesis 39, which you may have as well. They, they take this text and they go, well, this is, this is the text to do, that teaches us how to deal with temptation. And I certainly think there's a lot to learn about temptation here. It gets a lot of airtime in this chapter, but the key to understanding a lot of biblical passages, the key to interpretation, if you will, is often found in the passage's repetition. You go, what is, what is repeated in this chapter over and over again? 
And the most repeated phrase in this passage is some version of the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Whether it be in difficulty or in prosperity, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. It says it eight times in this chapter. And it says it only one more time in the whole story of Joseph. I wonder what's most important to see in this passage. Because when we're in the valley, the first thing out of our mouths, if it's not just in our minds, when things are hard, unexpected, we're disillusioned, naturally the first thing we say is, where's God? Where are you? Because I'm assuming pain means your absence. Hardship means you don't know what's going on. Difficulty means you're not in control. Where are you? That's just not true. This passage shows us that as the psalmist said, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear because you are with me. And so for Joseph, there's probably a lot to fear as a slave. He's gone from the favored son to a slave a ton to fear, but he doesn't fear because he trusts. And the Lord is with him, and the Lord in the story does prosper him, and he blesses him and everyone around him as a result. And while Joseph is probably a hard worker, even Potiphar, right, the pagan Egyptian, looks at what's going on is like, yeah, this is way beyond you. I mean, you're a great worker and a nice guy, but like, the Lord is blessing you like crazy. This is a guy who doesn't even believe and sees it because it's so over-the-top favor. But what we have to always remember as things begin to prosper and even Joseph's position begins to change, that he was always a slave before he was a manager of the house. And he will be a prisoner before he's a prince in Egypt. That the valley always comes first. And I'm convinced that the best journeys with God, the best ones, the good ones, begins in the valleys. And that if you hike at all, you, you understand that it's actually impossible to reach the peak without going through the valley. So is it possible you say it's impossible to reach God's peak without going through God's valley? And the greater the peak the deeper the valley. The greater the peak, the deeper the valley. And as much as we usually want to escape the valley, just get me out of the valley, the valleys where the peaks seem that much brighter and most amazing. And the valleys are actually where the life is. Because the higher you get, the less life's actually there. The valley is the place, right? It's the wilderness. I want to be in the wilderness. The wilderness is where it's hard. The wilderness is where it's lonely. The wilderness is where it's dark. But did you know that the wilderness is where the most life is? I'm convinced that valleys come first before the peaks. But God eventually does bring us out of the valley. And then it's only when we're basking in the glories of the peak that we actually are able to see the goodness of the valley. 
The peak is, is the place where what was difficult is kind of lost in what was beautiful. If you've ever been hiking, you know what this is like. Okay, I go hiking occasionally because most of the time my hiking is like I'm concentrating on breathing, taking steps. We're like, you want to talk? I can't talk. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Aaron Ortiz invited me to go snowshoeing. Um, I don't know when we did it. It was a little bit ago. Where are you at, Aaron? Somewhere? Okay. You want to go snowshoeing? Sure. That'd be great. So I had this vision of what snowshoeing was like. I, I figured we're in this like open meadow. There's birds flying by. I'm like, oh, that's pretty. Like caribou, just like, oh, this is nice and flat. This is fun. We'll have time to think. And like, no, that's not what it is at all. And I thought I was kind of in shape. So we start going up this track and you're walking in snow. It's thick and difficult. It's not like normal walking, right? I'm thinking you got like snowshoes, so they just kind of float on top of the snow, right? It's like, no, they don't sink all the way down, but they don't float. I was hurting. Like we were going and we started going uphill and Aaron's just like tromping along because he does this all the time, I guess. And he's tromping along and I am, I am hurting. I'm like, this is not good. And I said, Aaron, because we're, stop, we're stopping because he needed a break. Yeah, right. He, didn't want to, he knew I'd get lost in the wilderness if he kept going. So he stopped, and I said, Aaron, because again, I have this vision of flat meadows. And he's like, I go, Aaron, is this, is this all uphill the whole time? He's like, well, this is, this is the hardest part. It's almost like, whatever. That's like when you tell your kids, like, just around the next bend, right? I'm like, you are such a liar. So we start going, and I am seriously thinking, I don't think I'm going to make this. And I'm definitely never doing this again. So we keep going and Aaron just keep, in the, we stop, like we see footprints and then nothing. He's like, oh, we're going to have to find the trail ourselves now. This is not good. So he starts going and we get off trail. And now we're like at a 45 degree angle. I'm like, this is getting worse. And I seriously thought, okay, does my phone work out here? Because if I die, it's possible. I was so much pain. It was horrible, but then I pushed through it barely. I'm going super slow, and it was, I'm just sweat. It's horrible. We get to the top, though. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, right? And you're like, that was awesome. I, let's do this. We should do this all the time, right? Because you're on the peak, and the valley gets forgotten. You forget how difficult it was. You forget how ugly it was. You forget that you felt like you are going to die, because now you're like, Hey, this is awesome. Let's have some snacks, right? It's beautiful. And that's what peaks do. They're, they're awesome. Difficult heights, there's the payoff. The problem is, yeah, that was a problem for sure. <laughs> that was definitely a problem. It wasn't a problem until I rolled down the hill a couple times. You're going to wear jeans? Oh, it'll be fine. I'm thinking we're walking through a meadow. I'm not going to fall that way. Clearly, I was wrong. But the truth is, like, the, the sharpest peaks, the highest peaks, they're actually, um, you can't bask in the glories too long because they're actually very dangerous places to stand. Because when you're on the, the peak, right, you're exposed. And you're alone on the peak, and you're vulnerable on the peak, and you can fall off the peak. Or get knocked off spiritually by the world 
or your flesh or the enemy. And so, Joseph on the peak, running everything. We don't know how long he was in the house, but it was long enough for the master's wife to cast her eyes upon young, strapping, good-looking, handsome Joseph. And she invites Joseph to lie with her, which I'm sure you know what that means. It's interesting that the Bible reveals in this case and in every other case that some of the strongest temptations come after the greatest successes. When things are going well, when things are prosperous, when things are like, man, nothing could go wrong, something goes wrong. And that wrong is a very strong temptation. Nothing, I think, makes us more vulnerable to attack than success, power, prosperity, comfort. We don't think of it that way. It's any wonder, shouldn't be any wonder, that Jesus, along with others, warn often about the dangers of prosperity. Talking about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, we all want to be rich and comfortable and all these things, not understanding that it's such a dangerous thing to experience. Joseph's temptation comes following an amazing season of fruitfulness and a great promotion. So why is Joseph able to, to meet this head on? Why doesn't he just fall? I'm convinced that it's because he was prepared before the temptation came. More often than not, temptation surprises us because we never think it's going to come. But Joseph was convinced of God's promises. He was committed to seeing it come to pass no matter what it costs. He knew exactly how he got where he was. He knew that he was not experiencing blessing because he was some awesome worker. He knew that he had favor with men because he had favor with God. He knew that every success that he had experienced or would experience was a direct result of God blessing him. My question is, do we view our peaks the same way? Because all too often we rise and we succeed and we achieve and we have accolades and praises and we're like, yeah, pretty awesome, aren't I? We may not say that, but I think internally we think that. Look at all the good things that have come out of my hands. Who gave you those hands? Who gave you that brain? Who gave you that opportunity? We're even more vulnerable when we're on the peaks of prosperity and we think that we got there because of something in us. Joseph knows God has been faithful to him every step of the way, so he's going to be faithful and he fights the temptation. He doesn't simply say, no, thank you. First, he reminds her of his relationship to the master. He's like, look, your husband has trusted me more than anyone in the house. More than that, he has blessed me with more than I could imagine, more than anyone else in the house. He hasn't held back a single thing for me except you because you're his wife. More importantly, he reminds her, not only is this a dishonorable thing and a dangerous thing, this is sin against God. See, his primary, you think of all the things he could have said 
to respond to temptation. Well, I don't want to ruin a good thing. I don't want to hurt your husband. This is not a good decision for you. Other people will know. He didn't say any of those things. He says, this is a sin against God. He is not so much concerned with his own name, with the name of the wife, with the name of the boss, as much as he is with the name of God. And that's not the first time the temptation comes. It says in verse 10 that it comes again and again. Day after day she came. Hey, lie with me. Hey, lie with me. Hey, lie with me. And day after day he said the same thing. That's a sin against God. I'm not going to sin against God like that. Finally, when everyone's away, the wife goes on full assault. Joseph walks in the house when no one is there. And she grabs his garment. Lie with me. And Joseph knew this time there'd be no talking. And he ran. Not the first thing he did, obviously. But he knew it came a point where he couldn't just admonish, rebuke, talk his way out of it. He had to run. And it's interesting, we have difficulty determining when that time is. When it's time to say, no, that's not what I'm going to do against the Lord. And when it's time to not say anything, you just get out of there. And I was thinking, like, why is it that we, we, most of us don't run when we're supposed to? Why, why, don't, why don't we run away like Joseph did? And I, I think it comes down to a really simple thing. We, we really like life on the peak. And we're so scared to lose favor with men even more so than we're scared to lose favor with God. And, and temptation is that, that moment of decision, right? You decide something. And that, that second suffix off of decide, side is kill, right? Suicide, homicide. And so you have this idea of like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a decision here in this temptation. I can either go this way or this way, but if I go this way, I kill that. If I go this way, I kill that. And it's very hard to see comfort and power and prosperity die. Especially when you started as a slave. Oh, God, I can't lose this. But not Joseph. He doesn't wait to count the cost of his decision because he already knows it. And I encourage everyone to count the cost now. And why I mean is that Joseph had favor with men and favor with God. But at some point in your life, whether it be in a relationship, with a job, with an opportunity, whatever it is, you're going to have favor with men or favor with God. And you're going to have to choose. Joseph counts favor with God more important than anything he might lose. And he leaves his garment behind, and he leaves an opportunity to defend himself. And he leaves his job and everything he's accomplished because he'd already decided to lose everything that really didn't matter because it meant keeping the one thing that did. His relationship with the Lord. See, we won't sin against God when we are completely satisfied with Him and in His ways. And the moment we are convinced, right, that the goodness and greatness of God and His plan isn't that awesome. The moment we say, well, 
I don't know if I like this. I don't like how it's unfolding. We'll end up sinning to obtain what we think is gooder or greater. Yes, I used gooder. We we have to be convinced in our minds before temptation comes, before prosperity comes, before the valley. We have to be convinced in our minds that God's destiny, God's plan and how it unfolds is best, even if it's something worse than we imagine. The right thing to do is never, ever, 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 ever going to be determined by how much something will prosper or pain us. The right thing to do will always be determined by whether or not it will honor or dishonor God. And Joseph decides to honor him. But that decision means a lot, which comes to our third and final point. Joseph chooses to jump off the peak with God because it's better than falling without him. One commentator asked, I think, a curious question. He said, what would have happened had Joseph given in to her? He may have still ended up in prison, but as a failure with God. Right? We think like if Joseph's like, I just want to avoid prison. How can I avoid prison? That's not the primary way to make the decision. Said another way, jumping off the peak and falling off the peak may be actually equal in their fall pain. But one promises a return to glory and the other does not. God doesn't want us to fall without Him and lose our life. He actually wants us to leap with Him and find it. Potiphar's wife is psycho-crazy, right? She concocts this amazing story that is designed to defend her own name and to punish Joseph. And so she rallies the whole household to her cause, which is important. Immediately does it. Hey guys, do you know what happened? You're not going to believe it. And then when Potiphar returns, he tells, she tells him the same story. And her false accusations make Potiphar angry. But it's interesting, it's unclear exactly what he or who he's angry at. See, Potiphar trusted Joseph more than anyone in the household. He gave him the keys to everything he had. And it's unlikely Potiphar believed his wife was a chaste saint. But he had a reputation to protect. And now everyone knew what had happened because she told everybody what happened. But had he believed his wife, Joseph likely would have been executed. And so because he is Potiphar, because he is captain of the guard, because he has access to the king perhaps when others do not, he puts Joseph in the king's prison. And so completes the first fall for Joseph, but not a fall from grace. Once again, you see God through difficulty, through being falsely accused, positioning Joseph for greatness. But as you see, the journey to the peak is going to begin in another valley. And what's most difficult, I think, about this story is that faithful Joseph suffers for doing wrong. After all the years of hardship that he experiences, we can imagine how easy it would be for him to tire of doing good. 
ready to give up, right? Like, man, is it really worth it? Christians in the church in Galatia were encouraged by Paul, let us not grow weary of doing good. You know why he have to encourage that? Because we grow weary of doing the right thing. He says, don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Unfortunately, doing rightly in this world will often result in being treated wrongly. And Joseph's resistance to temptation doesn't create immediate reward. In fact, depending on how long he's in Potiphar's house, it's at least 11 years before he sees any sense of reward. But he was willing to jump off the peak into the valley because he had one governing truth guiding him that it was better to be in prison with God than to be free without him. And it's unlikely many of us will be in prison. In our culture, I could foresee that in perhaps 20 years where it becomes illegal to say certain things. Maybe we'll be thrown in prison, but consider what you may fill the blank in with. It's better to be uncomfortable with God than it is to be comfortable without Him. It's better to be impoverished with God than it is to be rich without Him. It's better to be sick and diseased with God than it is to be healthy without Him. Fill in the blank and ask yourself, do you really believe that? Is it better to die with God than to live without Him? Joseph believed that. And as bleak as the situation immediately becomes, where he goes from, again, top of the Potiphar castle to a prisoner, verse 21 reveals that he made the right decision. Because the Bible says that in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. It says it immediately. He's put in prison, the Lord is with Joseph. More than that, the Lord showed him steadfast love. More than that, the Lord gave him favor with men. Again, God said, I'm going to protect you in this valley. And God loved him in the valley. And he prospered him in the valley. And in a matter of time, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners, just as he was in charge of all things in Potiphar's house. In the prison, he would rise again to the top because the Lord was with him. And the last verse says, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord constantly throughout this chapter. What he did, and guess what? Joseph didn't do anything except get falsely accused and thrown in prison. Be like Joseph. Just trust like Joseph. In conclusion, this story is not about how to suffer well like Joseph. Or how, how to achieve prosperity like Joseph. Or how to fight temptation like Joseph. The problem with all those kinds of stories is that they're all centered on men. And there's certainly good lessons to learn from all of those things, but this story is told primarily to reveal something about God. The story of Joseph is supposed to lead us to the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus 
helps us to endure the valleys that we are going to experience or perhaps experiencing right now with the hope for the peaks that He promises. Jesus promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, and to always lead us. And the question is, why can we really trust Jesus to do that? Well, the Gospel tells us that Jesus was the one who jumped down off the highest of high peaks. The one who stepped off His throne in heaven and walked down into the valley to be with us. But as incredible as just that is, the infinite taking on human flesh and being born as the Son of God, as incredible as that is, dwelling with us what is, wasn't as low as He would go. He got lower than that. And if you look at His life, you see that Jesus endured the valley of misunderstanding. He endured the valley of hatred. He endured the valley of temptation. He endured the valley of rejection, of betrayal, of abuse, of false accusation, and eventually, the valley of death. He lost everything for us. The most perfect man that ever lived, suffered. And it surprises me when I'm surprised at suffering. I'm not even in the same category as sinless Jesus, and yet I go, hmm, why are things going so difficult? His life was difficult. Do not be surprised at suffering. Do not be surprised if you find yourself now or in the future in a valley, but don't despair because God goes into every valley with us. But more than that, the cross in the most amazing way, shows us that the lowest valley we might ever experience in this life is still higher than the valley we actually deserve. And that's the valley. The one that meant separation from God. The one that meant taking all the due punishment for my sins. That's the valley that God didn't go with us into. That's the valley that Jesus went into for us. He was forsaken in the darkest valley, one that I'm not even able to go into so that I might dwell on the mountain of God in all glory and joy. God is with you. And this is what this table represents. As you come to the table, it's for those who are in Christ, for those who believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, that He lived the life you should have and died the death that you deserve. We come to the table, and it's a declaration as you take this bread which represents His body and dip it in the cup which represents His blood. It's your declaration that God is with me. I may be in the darkest valley, or I may be on the highest peak. And if it's in the valley, God's with me. And if it's a peak, God put me there. It's God with us. It's God with us. It's God with us. And I want to close with Psalm 23 which I was reading between services to remind myself what I think is most important. Psalm 23 says this. Very familiar, but I want you to listen to the back half of it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And what? You prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies, my, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray.